Okay, my name's Darren Greenfield. I work at Weimar Institute, managing the farm there. And we have been growing sweet potatoes for six years now. And I don't have time to tell you, you know, kind of the testimony behind that and why, because I will cut out some valuable information in the presentation. But I've learned a lot over the years, and I still have a lot to learn. But they're actually a very easy plant to grow. And um, I believe that as Adventists, we have an advantage with sweet potatoes because we are promoting the health message. If you were to put Adventist advantage into the Mr. Google and, and get an answer back on what, what it is, you'll find all these presentations there about how Adventists have this amazing um, health and longevity that the general population doesn't have. And so as we grow sweet potatoes and we promote sweet potatoes, uh, we can tie it into the health message as we tell people about the benefits of uh, sweet potato, and I'll share a little bit about that. So um, sweet potatoes are rated by some authorities as the best vegetable you can eat. They are loaded with carotenoids, vitamin C, potassium, and fiber. The skin has as much antioxidants as blueberries and three times the nutrients of the flesh. So make sure you get good organic ones if you're going to buy them or if you're going to grow them. Obviously, you're not going to be pouring chemicals on them, so eat the, eat the skin. That's where most of the goodness is. Um, they can absorb up to, this is the key thing to remember, they can absorb up to 62 minerals if they are in the soil. Did you get that? How many minerals? 62. Now contrast that to most vegetables and fruits that we grow, most of them can only absorb less than 20. So three times as much or more the nutrients of most of the food that we eat. Um, that's pretty good. Uh, they have also an anti-cancer protein called sporamin, and it's 80% of its total protein. Exposed directly to tongue cancer reduced its viability in days. So basically, the, the, the test they did, they, they had these people with tongue cancer eating sweet potato regularly, and it had the same effect as putting them on chemo or you know the, the, the treatments that they normally give. So naturally, uh, so it's pretty amazing. Sweet potato leaves. They're really good to eat. They're not the best tasting, but you can mix them in a stew or, or put them a little bit in a salad or um, mix them. You can eat the leaves. Um, sweet potato leaves kill 94% of prostate cancer cells in vitro. An extract of sweet potato leaves was dis discovered to be extremely toxic to prostate cancer cells in a study, killing 94% of them in vitro and slowing the growth of prostate tumors in mice by 75%. Other research has shown that these super greens are also active against breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, stomach cancer, and leukemia. And the health benefits of these greens are not just for the lab. One study out of Taiwan showed that eating at least 100 grams per week of this super vegetable decreased lung cancer risk by up to 57%. In other studies, sweet potato leaves boosted immunity uh, in humans and lowered blood sugar in mice with type 2 diabetes. And if you need an energy boost, sweet potato leaf could be just the vegetable for you. A recent study showed it significantly relieved fatigue in mice, increased exercise capacity, and even boosted muscle gly glycogen levels. Why are these greens so powerful? They are an excellent source of potent antioxidants called polyphenols, including the unique and powerful, can't say that word, and uh, anti-cancer peptides. And alkaline diet fans, take note, these greens are one of the most alkalizing vegetables out there, delivering 400% the alkalizing power of pure lemon juice, ounce for ounce. So sweet potatoes truly are a superfood. You want me to go back? 400%. The alkalizing power of pure lemon juice, ounce for ounce. 
if any of you are involved in, in trying to do some agriculture with a school, for our North American climate, where our schools are out of sync with the growing season, planted before, you can plant them before school gets out for the summer. During the summertime, when you don't have that student labor force, they just need watering and weeding. When school comes back in, you harvest them, you store, wash, and pack them while you have students, and it uh, provides excellent work experience for unskilled students. You know, a lot of the plants and things we grow, if you have unskilled students, they can often do a lot of damage, and uh, it's hard for them to do a lot of damage to the sweet potato. So here we have some uh, our elementary kids come out. They have fun picking up the sweet potatoes off the ground, and uh, they, it's, yeah, it's really a fun activity. Um, if you're looking at it for making money, this quote comes from uh, one article that says, sweet potatoes are a marketer's dream commodity because as with blueberries and strawberries, demand keeps increasing despite harsh economic times. That was uh, 2013, and I can say, because we've been growing them before that time and, and up to the present time, every year the price is increasing. Not a, not a lot, maybe 5 to 7% every year, but it is continuing increasing. And, and some other crops that we grow, um, the price is declining, it's going down. So the demand is push, keeping the price up. It provides an off-season income. This is really a blessing because by the time you get to October in North America and most of the, most of the country, your crops are ending, your income stops, or maybe you start putting in some winter crops, but the, the, definitely the income starts uh, declining rapidly. And if you harvest your sweet potatoes in October, then you have some months to sell them. In fact, we would grow enough to keep selling all the way through to March or April. So we had a constant strong income right through those months. And so that was a tremendous blessing. Um, I'm not so sure on pricing out on the east side of the states. I, in Tennessee, when I was there over Christmas, I saw in the stores that they were selling sweet potato for about, I think it was 79 or 80 cents a pound. Whereas out in California, they're over a dollar a pound, um, maybe a dollar fifty a pound, and for organic ones, maybe two dollars forty a pound. So the price seems to be a lot stronger on the west coast than it is here. Um, so you have to weigh the economics if you want to grow them. But it's definitely worth experimenting with um, and seeing if it's a crop that will work for you. So getting started. Like anything in life, we should turn to the Word of God for our wisdom. I love this passage in Isaiah 28. And this is kind of a promise that I have claimed and God has been true to His promise and has blessed tremendously. It says, give ear and hear my voice, listen, to, listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin? Plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place? For he, that is God, instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Praise God. He is so willing to teach us if we will ask. In the book Education, it says, In the cultivation of the soil, the thoughtful worker will find that treasures little dreamed of are opening up before him. No one can succeed in agriculture or gardening without attention to the laws involved. The special needs of every variety of plant must be studied. Different varieties require different soil and cultivation and compliance with the laws governing each is the condition of success. So, sweet potatoes. Unlike just about everything else we grow, you don't plant seeds to have them grow. They're not, a, they're not part of the potato family, the Irish potato family. They're a different family. 
Some people think you, you get them and cut them up and look for eyes and, and, um, and grow them and put little chunks of sweet potato in the ground. That's not how you grow them. They are planted from vines that are called slips. And um, they're, they're amazing because they're almost like a weed. These little slips that you cut that might be you know, 12 inches long, you put them in the ground and a bit of moisture and they immediately send out roots. And those roots in just a few days can grow that long. Just, it's amazing, they take off. And in fact, um, when we cut our slips um, and we have them in tubs that we put a bit of water in, if we don't get them planted in one or two days, when by the time we actually plant them in the ground, we're planting them, they've already got these white roots out the side just from sitting in water. And you can plant them upside down and they still grow. <laughs> and they still produce a crop. So here you see a little picture of in our greenhouse, or high tunnel, it's not a heated greenhouse, uh, in one of the beds there, we just basically take sweet potato and um, we scrape back the soil, back a, a couple of inches of soil back, and then just lay them side by side, close together, thick right across there, and then cover them back up with the soil and so that we have maybe an inch of soil covering them. And, um, and then we additionally put another you know, um, cover of plastic under there to help it get hot. In fact, um, for us out in California there, the best time to start growing them is about mid-February to end of February to get them started. Did that you way, cover them with soil again? Uh, with plastic. Oh, oh, yes, the sweet potato put the soil over them. Now, if you're a home grower, obviously this might not be practical for you. So what you can do if you want to just do a few, get yourself one of these pots that's maybe a five-gallon or three or four-gallon pot. Put a, uh, a mix of maybe soil 50-50 with compost or sand. Uh, sand will leach the water out pretty quickly, so clay soil holds it, the moisture better. And you can just put one or two sweet potato in the top and just cover it with an inch of, of uh, soil. And um, then put plastic over the top and then put a, a string or something to tie it on. And then put that in a windowsill in your house or somewhere where it needs to be about 70 degrees or higher. The higher, the faster they, they grow. And um, you will see in about two to three weeks the sprouts will come through and start shooting up and you'll, they'll start growing. And um, they need some light, but I've actually seen where they've been in a window where they get light half the day, the sun comes up and then passes over and they're in the shade and they will grow in the vines. You can actually have your vines grown that way um, and then plant them out. We plant them starting beginning of May uh, after the risk of frost is, is gone. They are a tropical plant and so they, they originate in, in South America and they like warm weather. They love hot weather actually very heat tolerant and very hardy. In fact, um, you can take your slips and plant them in the ground, give them a good soaking, and then not come back and water them for the whole summer and they will survive. They won't grow big you know, sweet potato, but they will survive. They're just incredibly hardy. So um, they're, they're just an amazing plant and easy to grow. You can see that I've got some conduit um, bent into hoops there. Um, so if you're just starting, and waiting for the sprouts to come through, you could put plastic straight over top of them, but as soon as the sprouts come through, you're gonna give them some space. So um, if you use that frost cloth, um, you could put that straight on the ground. See the ground, the temperature in the ground typically stays um, close to 55 degrees. And so if it's cold, like in mid-February in our area, it's still gonna be around 40 degrees or something like that, uh, maybe 50 degrees. And so by putting the frost cloth on the ground, you're hugging the heat from the, from the ground around the, the sweet potato and plants. And then the plastic over top, the sun shines through and usually will increase the temperature inside there by 20 to 40 degrees. And so you're trying to make it really nice and hot. Seal it off, don't give them any ventilation, and it will stimulate the growth much faster. You're starting in February, March? We'll start our slips then, yes. Yes, that you can see them in the ground there and then um, come May, then we cut our slips because then we've got about 12 inches of, of vine that we can um, cut. Now, the picture here, you can see they're really thick. When you put your sweet potato really, really close together in the beds, then it forces them to grow vertically instead of horizontally. And they're really close together. And when it comes to cutting your slips to plant out, 
Now we're planting thousands of them, so you can just grab a whole handful and with a, a knife just come in and cut them and then we put them in a plastic tub with a couple of inches of water and, and um, so it's very easy to harvest the slips that way and, and get planting and put them straight in the ground. The sooner they go in the ground, the quicker they rebound. But even sitting in water in a tub, they can survive for several weeks uh, like that before you plant them out. It just takes them a little bit longer to, to uh, bounce back. You can buy them, yeah. You, uh, slips you can't save, but you could, the sweet potato themselves you can save. And um, then, or you can buy sweet potato from a store and then and do it that way. Although I would say if you're going to buy them to, to sprout them, buy organic ones because the conventional ones may have an anti-sprouting chemical that is sprayed on them before they are packed. When they go through the packing line, they spray a fungicide and, a, and an anti-sprouting um, spray on them. So um, it may be harder to get them to sprout or may, may take longer to get them to sprout. Than, they're different than normal potatoes. Yeah, they grow vines, but they do usually at the stem end of the sweet potato, more shoots will come out there than the rest of the potato. But one potato, if you just put it in a pot, you may get a dozen vines growing up out of the soil from that one potato. As far as getting sweet potatoes, um, there are places around. Johnny's does sell some slips. If you're in California, um, California is really strict and doesn't allow sweet potato slips to be mailed in from other states. They're, they're, almost every state that grows them, they say, you know, they can't be imported. So, uh, but there are sources. They're hard, they are hard to find. Um, but if you do a search, you will find um, some. Talk to Larry Lesher if you're on the East Coast. He uh, knows where to get them. I know he, he grows them. Okay, sorry, I need to go back here. So what, what we do is um, on the back of our rototiller, I um, made up this molder that molds the soil into like raised beds that are 30 inches apart. And um, that's what we plant directly into. And uh, it makes the whole process easier. If you're home, doing it at home, just rototill your soil, try to work down, you know, a, a good six inches in your soil. And then with a rake, rake from both sides and mold up a, you know, a row like that. And then when you plant into it, you can plant them about, depending on the variety, um, we grow Covington, which is jewel. It's very similar to Beauregard. Um, we plant those at eight inch spacing apart. But the Japanese and some other varieties like to be 12 inches apart. If you have the space and you're not doing it for, um, you know, for money, uh, then 12 inches apart will be better. It gives them a bit more space and they will grow a little bit bigger um, in the time that you have. So we mold up the rows. Uh, there's a picture. It's a very simple thing. So if you're into commercial growing, I don't think it would cost you an arm and a leg to have a welding shop make something like this for you. Um, one of the important things that we do is test our soil and find out what the nutrient content is. Uh, we use Kinsey Agricultural Services. In fact, Whitmar, if you know Whitmar McConnell, who's doing the advanced soil class, um, I'm actually using him as our consultant now because he is a consultant for Kinsey. We mail our soil samples into Kinsey with his farm name and, and so forth on it, and they send it to their lab, uh, Perry Labs, and then they mail the results from the lab to Whitmar, and then he actually sends us the, um, the, the results of it with the recommendations. And it costs about $5 more, I think, than going directly with Kinsey. But if you go directly with Kinsey, I've had sometimes three months before I've got results back because they're so backlogged and such high demand. Whereas with um, Whitmar doing the consultation, he, I usually have it between two and three weeks. So it's a lot faster and he will answer emails almost immediately and he's available via phone. So um, taking a soil test for any type of gardening or, or farming is really the foundation and the basis for success. If you don't know what you've got in your soil, then you can compost year after year, but pretty soon you're going to start getting out of balance and you're going to not get the same results as you did in the first year. So testing your soil, it costs about $50, $55 uh, to do it. It's the best investment in your garden or farm that you can ever make is testing your soil. Once we started doing that, we got 
just amazing results. Our yields were so much higher and um, I can't take time to say more about it, but I will emphasize that sweet potato love potassium. They are very high potassium feeders. So if your potassium levels are low, you will end up with small sweet potato. But if you get your, your potassium levels up, in fact, I have a hunch, I don't know what the commercial rates of potassium are um, for growing sweet potato, but I have a hunch that they're putting on about three times as much, maybe four times as much as regular crops. I, I, I have a hunch they put a, an awful lot because I've been gradually increasing the amount even beyond the recommendations from Kinsey and I'm starting to see our sweet potatoes get fatter instead of being long and, um, and then I look at the store-bought ones and they're short and really fat and I hand broadcast the, um, the uh, uh, you know, the potassium sulfate on the ground and some places where I'm hand broadcasting a little bit more gets dumped on the ground and then, you know, I obviously wrote it to let in. But as I'm harvesting, I'll come across these little patches where I think I've, you know, dumped a little bit more than other places and there'll be beautiful big fat sweet potato there. So um, potassium is vitally important. So experiment with it and uh, maybe if you can, apply different rates in different rows and then when you harvest, have a look at the results. In fact, we actually took a store-bought uh, sweet potato and one of ours and sent them off to International Ag Labs where they actually do a nutrient um, analysis and then gave us a report back and the store-bought one had three times the potassium levels in the sweet potato than ours had. So that's why I, I think that they are putting three times as much um, on. So here you can see students have a lot of fun when it comes to planting the sweet potato. Um, this is a little uh, video of them planting there. And um, they, they kind of see it as a competition to see how fast they can go. They have the slips lying in their laps and um, as the tractor sets the pace they just go and they're planting them in the soil there. And I'll, I'll, you can kind of see the technique there. You take it and just push it in the soil. You want about six inches of the slip to be in the soil. And, um, and then that's enough for them with moisture. Now it's really important to get water to them immediately. As soon as we've planted a row, we have one person that follows behind us and, and lays, uh, the drip tape is being laid from behind the transplanter. But um, as soon as we get to the other end, we cut it off, cap the ends of the drip tape or connect it to the manifold and turn on the water immediately, give them water. Because if you leave them dry in there, then they're going to wilt. And then by the time they get water, if they survive, they will um, take much longer before you see them starting to sprout and grow. And you'll probably end up with a lot of blanks if you don't get water to them immediately. So um, it's really important, in the, definitely in the heat of the day as you're planning. Sorry? Is this March you're No, this is May. May, yeah. As soon as you're up past the risk of frost, they are tropical and a frost will kill them. Um, so you've got to be past the, the risk. And um, get them into the ground immediately. They take a long, uh, hot summer. We typically grow between four and five months. So we're putting them in the ground immediately as we can, as soon as it's safe. And our last harvest is just before the risk of frost at the end of the season. So the longer they're in the ground, the longer they have to grow and the bigger they'll get. And uh, so that's really important. Um, we also kind of inoculate them with mycorrhizae fungi. And um, if you know anything about mycorrhizae fungi, they, they're an amazing creation of God that works symbiotically with the roots of plants. Not all plants, but um, most of them. And um, they actually increase the ability of the, the plants to take up nutrients by 100 to 1,000 times and um, make the plants more drought tolerant. Um, they're just an amazing thing. And uh, you can buy it. There's different forms that you can buy it in. Um, you can buy it in a kind of a pelleted type of uh, form where you can just sprinkle it on the ground. Um, we buy it in a powder, and so we actually, in the water that we have in our plastic um, totes, we'll mix in 
maybe a couple of teaspoons of it in that, and then put our slips in the water so they're being inoculated with it in the water, and then we take the slips out and then plant them direct in the ground so they get a bit of it on there. But I think if you're doing a smaller area, just putting it straight in the soil may be better because you can more accurately put it in there. But yes? I, I it, Yes, there are. Um, yeah. Is there a particular one that you use or, or sweet potatoes, you know, not finicky? Or... <laughs> yeah, there's a company in Oregon called Mycorrhizal Applications. And the guy that is the head of that um, company, he is a scientist. And um, you can actually call and consult with them as to the type of uh, crops you're growing and what uh, fungi will be the best. So I can't tell you a name. I just went with their recommendations and bought the powder because that was the best suited to our uh, growing conditions. Mycorrhizal applications, yeah, in Oregon, yeah. And um, they sell it pretty much commercially. They're not really selling small quantities for home growers. They have. They can probably tell you where there's a retail outlet in your area if you need a small quantity of it. But it's expensive. We bought, I think it was a bag that had 20 or so pounds for about $300. So yeah, it's, it's expensive. But you know, um, with commercial agriculture, you have to calculate, well, what's the benefit going to be? And if it gives you 10, you know, 10 times that in return, then it's worth paying $300 to get a $3,000 increase in return. So um, start small, experiment, and what works, then it's worth investing in. Yes? This is a fungi. You said it's helpful for sweet potato. Is it not harmful for others? It's not harmful. It won't do any harm to any, any, any crops. If it's the cruciferous family, don't um, interact with mycorrhizae fungi. So, um, you know, there are certain uh, varieties that just it doesn't do anything for, but it's not going to harm them. In the forest, natively, there's mycorrhizae fungi everywhere. They're an incredible um, creation of God. I'll, I'll, just, I'll tell you a couple of details and then I must move on. They actually communicate to the plants. They become a communication network. One of the research uh, studies that was done in Europe found that when one plant started getting attacked by insects getting eaten, they communicated through the mycorrhizal uh, network to the other plants, and the other plants started putting out chemicals to resist the onslaught of these insects that they were told by that plant that was being eat, started getting eaten. And um, there's a TED talk, if you uh, listen, there's a lady in um, Canada who did research in the forest and she found that even between different species of trees that the mycorrhizal fungi that connected them, they would actually share nutrients between the trees when one was struggling and, an, and that a, a, a tree that was shedding its seed and, um, and then the little uh, you know, trees, little plants were growing around this, this tree that the mother would also, mother tree would actually share with their little babies and help them grow through the mycorrhizal um, network. And they actually then took the study a step further and they transplanted not seed from that tree but from another tree of the same kind around that tree to see if it made any difference whether it was from that tree or not. And the mother tree favored her own seedlings. And, uh, and didn't uh, for those transplants. So they're an incredible creation of God. We have no idea the communication that goes on in the microscopic levels under the soil. You know, the soil is a living organism, and um, yeah, I better go on. <laughs> so here you can see um, the um, drip tape being laid out. Let's move on. So irrigation is really, really important. Um, we feed. We buy soluble uh, potassium sulfate, and um, then you can buy a very simple fertilizer injector. This is called a Marzi injector, and you can put this in line with your uh, manifold, and you can mix up you know, anything you want to feed through 
uh, but for the sweet potato, potassium. Now, one thing I will mention about nutrient needs of the sweet potato, unlike all your other crops, they need very small amounts of nitrogen. You can grow them without giving them any additional nitrogen, um, whereas other crops, if you didn't give them some nitrogen, they would just be stunted and dwarfed and, and, and just wouldn't have any energy. They need about 120 pounds per acre of nitrogen. Our soil tests show that we have natively about 80 pounds of nitrogen available just in the soil. And so unlike other crops, tomatoes, cucumbers need 300 plus pounds of nitrogen per acre. Um, you don't actually need to supplement them. I, when I first do the transplants, I give them a, maybe a couple of weeks of some additional nitrogen just to get those slips growing fast. You want to get those vines going out. They'll spread out 8, 9, 10, 12 feet you know, um, across each other and, and make a network. And then they, once they, they blanket the area, they shade out all the weeds and you don't have to do more weeding. But anyway, the, the fertilizer injector allows you to feed nutrients. We also put, um, sometimes uh, we'll feed the uh, ocean minerals through, which I'll speak to uh, um, as well. They can be dissolved in water. But potassium sulfate, if you don't remember anything else, remember potassium sulfate um, is the most important nutrient for them. The ocean minerals, there's 90 plus uh, minerals in the ocean in perfect balance. You can buy, if you're near the ocean, you can go and get ocean water and you can dilute it 10 times, 10 parts fresh water with one part um, ocean water. And then you can apply that down your rows and maybe do that once a week for about six weeks. Um, you can buy from, if you go to a website called cagri.com, um, you can buy a product that's called C90. Um, and that comes, it looks like salt or sandy salt, and you can broadcast that. You, you, need, to, you need to test your soil to see we, what your sodium levels are, because if you live in Arizona, New Mexico, um, deserty types of places where there's low rainfall, you may have already high um, salt levels and it may be um, not feasible or, or actually detrimental to, to apply it. So make sure you know what your sodium levels are. I see a hand back there, yes. Can you please repeat the ratio for the... The ocean water? water? Yeah. yeah, so one part ocean water uh, to 10 parts fresh water. And um, it, it gets amazing results. When we went to Jamaica last year and um, did an ag conference there, we shared, Lynn Hoag taught about it, and I was told recently that they did that and they got amazing results. They were really impressed. So they took it straight out of the ocean. And you can use that for any plants as well, or the ocean water? I believe so. Yeah. If you go to the cagri.com, there's a lot of articles, a lot of scientific um, articles and testimonials from many you know, individuals that have used it. Um, cagri, S-E-A-A-G-R-I, cagri.com. Or if you just put a, um, a search in Google, um, C90, SEA-90, and you, it will direct you to the CAGRI uh, website. So um, ocean minerals are amazing. And remember, the sweet potato can absorb how many minerals? 62. So natively in our soil in California, we only have 15 or 16 minerals available. So if they're not there, they can't take them up. But by applying the trace minerals that are in the ocean minerals, they have, the sweet potato can take 62 minerals because they're available into them. And then they pass them on to us when we eat them. Yes? Uh, if you um, buy the trace mineral, the bottle trace You could do that, but it would be a very expensive way to do it. Okay. So when you buy the, or if you, yeah, if you buy the uh, C90 product, um, the, the higher volume you buy, the cheaper it is, but um, it's not that expensive and it goes a long way. You really apply, we, we apply 250 pounds per acre um, and that's not much really. And we, we apply it to all of our crops.
Yes. I see a hand here. Yes. Uh -huh. Some of them, and a lot of them were like really large like this, but uh -huh. they were like all cracked and rotten. How okay. Okay, so what probably went on, when they're typically long and thin, they haven't been getting enough water, and they're going deeper to try and find water. And uh, so that can be a problem. It can also be that your potassium levels are low, and therefore they had nothing to make them fat, so they just stayed long. But typically, it's a water deficiency. Um, the cracking can be also because they dried out and then got water and dried out and got water, and they just, you know, that was a stress to them. I'm not really experienced with the cracking side of it because we, we haven't had that issue. Um, but that would be my thought on it that it was probably irregular watering. We also grew tomatoes in our Okay, well that's interesting, yeah. I would experiment with uh, backing off. It is true, if, you, if they're waterlogged, that's not good for them either. We have several patches in our field where there's almost like springs, there's just boggy things, and even through our hot, dry summer, it stays wet. And I have noticed that um, when we plant, because we'll just go right through that bog and plant through that bog, and in that bog, they do grow kind of thin and long too, so it could be from overwatering. But typically, most people make the mistake of underwatering because they don't show stress from lack of water. They, they can be totally dry, and they look perfectly green and healthy and, and not showing stress. I mean, when they get really, really dry in the heat of the day, you'll see the leaves wilting a little bit. If you see that, man, you've let them go way too far, and um, you're probably going to have some uh, detrimental results if they get to that point. But um, tip, depending on your soil type, now in the sandy soils where they typically grow them, um, because they're easier to grow and they look prettier and the, and the commercial growers grow them in a sandy loam soil, um, they are watering six hours a day with drip tape. And uh, if you're in a clay soil like we have, which retains the moisture really well, we water them three times a week, three hours each time. And that's about just right for us. But you need to experiment, and every year, or if you can, and you have several rows that you can do different amounts of water, you can experiment to see what gives you the best results. The, the, the thing that's hard to tell as they're growing is they will give you no outward sign of any difference between ones that are getting lots of water and ones that are getting little or no water, hardly. You know, So it's the harvest that will show you the results. Every day, that's what they're giving them. Six hours, and yeah, six hours of water. They're using a drip irrigation, yeah, drip tape, yeah. And if you're not using drip? Well, you're probably using a sprinkler, I would imagine, if you're not using drip. Um, so you probably would use less because you're not a, see a drip just applies it in a single row and then it kind of wicks out from there. Um, I can't really tell you, maybe, Maybe an hour, maybe you can put a um, basin out there and with your sprinkler over an hour, see how much collects in that basin. Now drip tape is typically, especially the long rows of drip tape, are probably going to be, um, you know, in a, in a foot area, they're probably going to be putting out maybe three quarters of a quart or a quart of water per foot of drip tape. So with your sprinkler, if you just put a container that's maybe the size of a foot diameter or a foot square, and then measure over an hour how much that sprinkler's collecting in there, and if you have about a quart, then that's probably enough. At least that's, um, I mean, not enough, that's, the quart per hour would give you the equivalent rate of what the drip, drip tape would give. Or the, once you receive, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through the process as I go. Once you have a quart in the, um, container would be equivalent to one hour of drip tape. Does that make sense? Sorry, I'm kind of trying to process it. And, and um, Okay, so here's the uh, sulfate of potash that we use. Um, 
we use the, for broadcasting, we use the standard fines. It's like a sand and it's easier to broadcast. If you buy it in a powder soluble form and there's a little breeze, you see it just float away and all your money's just going off into the feed the grass somewhere. So um, you want to have a coarser um, grind for broadcasting. Um, here you'll see kind of the difference. The fat ones had plenty of potassium and the thinner ones didn't. So it makes quite a, uh, a difference. The potassium is expensive, but it will repay you many times more than the investment in buying the potassium. Weeding. Weeding is vitally important. Uh, weeds rob the plants of nutrients. They choke out um, the, the sun from the plants. And if you let the weeds get going with them, then um, you, you will get a smaller yield. The, 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 Sweet potato will be a lot smaller. In fact, the weeds could just choke them out. They'll stay alive, but you may not have a harvest. So weeding, here's a little video. You'll see how we do it. Um, we did, for the first few years, by hand, a lot of weeding. Um, this is called a scarifier. It's just a toolbar that has what's called shovels that are mounted on it, and they go through and scrape the dirt. And then... Um, one of my students was complaining about having to stand and bend and do all this weeding and, oh, my back and all this, you know. And, and so he said, can't we um, make something that we can lie down and do it? And he pestered me and pestered me until finally I said, okay, let's do it. And um, so I was teaching him how to weld anyway. And so I made him do some of the welding. And he was worried. He says, what if it breaks? <laughs> I said, well, I'll put you, because we had an outrigger out the side. I said, you can lie on that. And if it breaks, it's your own fault. <laughs> and uh, it didn't break. It was fine. I knew it would be. <laughs> so anyway, um, the kids just have lots of fun. And you see these little um, hand weeders there? Um, I designed those to be kind of very kind on your hand and wrist because when you're doing weeding, we were weeding for two weeks every day constantly when we were doing five um, acres of sweet potato and you'd get so sore, your wrist and hand. So designed this weeder to have like a pistol grip handle so that it's a triangular blade that is sharpened all the way around. When you push it, you're pushing against here and when you pull it, your hand is in a natural and your wrist is in a natural position and it's really easy. So you're using a lot of your shoulder muscle where you're strong to do the weeding, whereas most hand weeders have a triangular blade and then they have a horizontal handle and in order to hold onto it, you're holding onto it with your wrist kind of like that. You've got to grip really hard to push and, and pull it and your hand wears out really quick. So this was a tremendous blessing and we can go all day and your, your wrist doesn't give you any, any grief. Um, and they, uh, Lynn Hoag has a um, booth out there if you want one of those. Um, we're now, I've been getting them made, um, been outsourcing them. And um, so he has them available. He's, he's selling them there if you want to take a look at them. They work really, really well. Um, and they, they're a lifetime tool as well. They, they, uh, they won't break and wear out on you. You can resharpen them, and they just keep working really well. Yes? Well, if you're going to be you know, on foot, you probably want to kneel down as you're doing your weeding. So if you're, doing a, if you're a home grower and you get down on your hands and knees, it's really an aggressive weeder, and you can be very accurate around your plants with it. And um, the other place that sells them is Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. They sell a lot. We, yeah, we sell hundreds of them to them. And, um, well, they normally retail for 25 and um, we have a sale here at the, uh, for the conference. They're $16, so, and there might be some tax involved. Just talk to Lynn Hoag at his booth, and he'll, he'll uh, tell you the details. So they're not too expensive, and unlike most of the hand tools that you can buy, especially at Home Depot, you might not pay a lot of money for them, but they won't last you for a terribly long time when you use them a lot. So here you can see in front of the tractor the grass and weeds that are growing and then look behind after we've gone through and the tractor stays at a very constant pace and you can get um, a lot of weeding. With this particular um, weeder behind the tractor, what used to take us two weeks when we were on foot and we were working hard and, and really pushing, 
we were able to get done in two and a half days on this. So it really drastically reduced the amount of time. It was a tremendous blessing. There you can see the sweet potatoes growing. Notice you don't see weeds in there. We, we go through after you can't go through with a tractor because the vines will cover the, the valleys where the wheel track goes. Then we go through on foot. And by that time, the weeds that are coming usually stand, you know, they're, they're not very thick. And we just go through and pull them out by hand. And I just have a row of helpers that go through with me. And we take about two or three rows each. We just walk down there and pull them out. And it's very quick. So we keep it weed-free, and we get uh, amazing results from that. There you can see this. You can see the different uh, shades of green there. That's different varieties. And then, of course, there's melons and eggplant and, and um, tomatoes and other things planted there. So we, keeping weeds out makes a big, big difference. That's the biggest fight for us as farmers is weeds. <laughs> They're of the devil. If you read, Ellen White says that uh, Satan was the one through amalgamation, um, you know, created the noxious weeds that are a curse to us today. Um, so here we're getting into the harvest time and we try to involve the kids when they're available. And so we have to pull up the drip tape first and uh, it has to be cut and pulled out because the vines are really heavy on top of it and it's, you know, we go through and cut it in different sections, pull it out, stuff it in the van and go to the dumpster and, and get rid of it. Um, no, you can't. We, we at, uh, when we were at our peak of sweet potato production, we actually um, we were using 10 miles of drip tape. Can you imagine trying to roll up 10 miles of drip tape? Um, so this was a, a harvesting device that I kind of adapted. They're actually drip tape lifters that I've I made a special toolbar, put a couple of what the kids call pizza cutters. They're actually technically called coulters that cut the vines in the row so that the arms can go down. And then I made this uh, harvester to, to harvest them, which David Obermiller now has um, down at, in Fresno. But it worked really well when the texture of the soil was just right. But the clay soil is very challenging and we have a lot of rocks and stones and it would keep jamming it and um, and also in the wet patches we go through there and instead of it shaking loose the sweet potato from the the dirt we'd have a big thick um, slice of dirt going up and over and it actually ended up blowing the hydraulic motor and and um, so the time that I it took to deal with these um, issues it was faster for us to go through with the drip tape lifters and um, there you can see a picture of them there. Um, it was faster to go through with that and just pick them up and separate them from the vines by hand than to have to deal with unblocking the, the uh, harvester. But he has sandy soil and uh, it works great for him. So you can buy them commercially. They're about, I think, six and a half thousand dollars. This is what a commercial harvester looks like. They have a trailer, they load, they put their bins along the sides, they grade them as they're harvesting them, and so any seconds go into one bin, they, they can size them, they have a team of people, it's like a factory line, and they go through fairly quickly, and you can see there the sandy soil, it looks like beach sand, um, and it separates them, and they're beautiful, and grown in the sand, but sand does not hold nutrients like clay does. So if you're growing for nutrition, um, you're going to get better results. Our sweet potatoes are so amazing in taste. I've heard over and over again from people, they say, wow, your sweet potatoes um, taste like they've got butter and salt on them. <laughs> and, um, and then the other, other testimony I've heard from people, you know, I normally don't like sweet potatoes, but I love your sweet potatoes. So growing in the clay... Um, we do, we do the orange ones, which um, are typical in this country are called yams. They're actually a sweet potato. Yams are a marketing name. Um, we do uh, one that's called, it's uh, sold in the store as a hana. Uh, it's a white skin and a white flesh. And then we do the Japanese, which has a purple skin and a white yellowish kind of flesh. And they're, they're the nicest ones, actually, the Japanese. In, in my opinion, Americans like the sweet ones, but there's over a hundred varieties. But commercially, there's three, three or four main varieties. Uh, in the supermarket, it doesn't matter what the plant variety is; they people are accustomed to one name. So you'll see 
um, uh, jewels or out east it's going to be they're going to be a few different names um, Beauregard yeah and so even the Japanese there's plant varieties that have different names that are still just called Japanese but I've stuck with the commercially available ones because they give you the best yield and they grow the best they got the best vigor you can go to sand hill preservations in Idaho that grow over a hundred varieties of them um, they're not available until June or July so they're too late when you buy them from them they're too late to get a, a decent crop from them but if you wanted to then propagate them and then have your own you know slips for the next year you could buy some of theirs and try them but um, they they typically don't cross cross pollinate yeah um, in fact, it's rare to see flowers on them. Um, usually what I have found is when they start flowering, they've been getting too much water. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, yes? We use one that's called Covington. See, the Beauregard, when it started having disease issues, they developed a, a disease-resistant variety called Covington. It's almost identical to a Beauregard, um, but... It's, um, it's more disease resistant. Sorry? Covington is the plant variety. They sell it in the, in the stores as a jewel. Um, it's an orange flesh variety. Here you can see this is what we're aiming for. One plant, one slip with four, sometimes five beautiful number one sized sweet potato. They don't always come out like that. But um, when you get your potassium levels right, then that's what you can expect. And um, so I, I think we average in our harvest about two pounds per plant. But this particular plant would be more than two pounds. It might be three to four pounds. Um, but, you know, experience and time, you, you can start increasing your yield. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes. Over here. Um, I was wondering, do you know if the greens are edible? Yes, they are. Yeah. We don't sell them because they're very perishable. As soon as you cut them, they start wilting. Um, so, like farmers, yes, yeah, for yourself to eat. But selling them, you can sell them to Orientals. The Koreans, uh, a lot of the Asians will eat them. Filipinos, um, I know. In one of the Asian stores in Sacramento, you can go in there, and they call them yam leaves, and they have a little bunch of them you know, in, in there. So if you, if there's an Asian store around, you might be able to, from your bed that you grow the slips from, they'll keep growing after you've cut. In another month after you've cut, they'll be back where they were when you cut them. So you could actually go in and cut them and bunch them in a little bunch, and that's so fast to harvest. If you have a market for them and you put them in a bag and they put them in the refrigerated display, you could probably be selling them for a dollar, a dollar fifty a bunch, you know. So... But you have to have a market for them to, to be able to sell them. Um, yeah, put them with other things. They're strong in taste. Um, my wife is Portuguese, and she put them in a feijoada uh, stew, and they were good. You, you know, they never stood out in there. And um, the other thing, one time she, she just cooked them like spinach, and they were really strong. <laughs> she didn't like them. But if you mix them with other things, they... they Tastes pretty good. Um, yes? During a harvest, some of our sweet potatoes have like almost brown appearance, dark brown. Yeah. Is it fungal? Yeah, I've got a slide coming up, and so I'll, I'll talk about that. It's um, coming up pretty soon. So there you can see a nice bunch of them. Um, there we go, there's the slide. It's called scurf. It's a fungal disease, it's common. Um, if you are buying your slips it's possible that the disease will come on the slips from the soil that um, they were grown in when we've bought slips sometimes the slips when they're harvesting them instead of cutting them above the ground they yank them out of the ground and there'll be a little bit of the stem that was under the ground with a few roots on if you if your slips come like that cut that part off and even then i would try to sanitize them with uh, a light dilution we use a um, Parasitic acid, it's a, a hydrogen peroxide and 
uh, I guess it's a vinegar or something mix that we, it's called PAA. Um, and we make a dilute mix of that and then dip our uh, slips in that just to kill any fungal disease that might be on there. It comes, it'll transfer from farms. And then crop rotation is really important if you don't want to have this, this problem. Um, don't grow several years in a row. We've grown three years in a row. The second year we had a little, just a little bit of, of the scurf. The next year it was quarter of our crop, so it spread very rapidly. Uh, yeah, when you scratch the skin where it's black like that, underneath it's perfectly healthy and beautiful. Um, yeah, except, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, except that you know, the nutrition is in the skin, and I don't really want to eat a fungally diseased skin, so, yeah. Uh, scurf, S-C-U-R-F, scurf is the, the name for it, yes. This fungal will, will stay in the same spot, crop rotations at three years safe? So commercially, what they do to, to prevent the, the spread of that disease, they'll grow like a crop of sweet potato and then a crop of rye or some dry crop. You know, so the soil actually dries out because this, the fungal disease actually flourishes in a moist environment. So if you're growing a crop that has constant watering, it'll stay alive, whereas, you know, something that, or if you just leave the ground fallow, then you can plant back into it and it, it won't have spread. So, um, okay, so here we are. We're harvesting our field and we use these bins. You want to, if you're making your own bins, make sure they've got ventilation on the sides and underneath. Um, they will store at 55 uh, degrees for a long time. So if you can keep your temperature up, um, you don't want to have them much higher than maybe low 60s because they will start sprouting. Over a few months, they'll start sprouting. So 55 is the ideal temperature for storage, and they will store for a year or more at that temperature without sprouting, without going rotten. They like a bit of humidity as well. So... Um, that may be hard to produce in a small, you know, with a small quantity. Do you um, them off at all? Yes, we, we cure them. Yeah, I'll get to that. I'll show you what we do for curing them. Um, so here you can see our field, and the kids from, from the school are out there picking them up off the ground. We put them in these plastic totes and then carry them over to the bins. You want to handle them very gently when you dump them into these bins, if you just drop them from some distance, the dropping of them in there, that impact can start them, trigger the rotting process. And so, you know, if they're rough handled, when you go to, you know, to uh, process them for, for um, washing and packing, you can find a whole bunch of rotten ones in there and think, what's going on? It's because they were dropped, the impact will. So be very gentle with them. Also, if, you, if you're rough with them, it skins them and then they're ugly and they don't sell well. The prettier they are, the, the faster they sell. So here's the shed that Ruon here um, built most of it. Um, and it was actually an old shed that uh, was going to be bulldozed down and it had a beautiful metal structure. And so we, I disassembled it and Ruon came over and he raised the walls four foot and put a concrete uh, base around and raised it up. And so we use this for our sweet potatoes. It's just a metal building. It's not even insulated. It, I wish it was insulated. It just costs a lot of money to do that. And um, <clears throat> inside of there, you can see our crates of uh, sweet potato. We stack them up, you know, five or six high. And then the concrete floor in there has, it looks flat when you look at it, but if you pour water on it, it's got a slight little dip and you can get about an inch of water in the center of that, of the floor. And so when it comes to the, to the time of curing, we've got a furnace, like a furnace that you'd use in a greenhouse inside the, the shed. So we'll turn the temperature up to 85 degrees. And with that water on the floor, that provides humidity. And for three days, three to five days, um, that will cure them. So what it does, at the uh, cellular level, it actually makes the sweet potato think, okay, it's warm enough, I should start sprouting. But at three to five days, you bring them back down to the 55 degrees, they don't sprout, but the sugars inside have changed to where it has a preservative effect. Not only that, if they've been cut or scratched, it actually heals those, those injuries and uh, seals them so they don't go rotten. 
So curing is really important. It raises the sugar level that they're sweeter after they've been cured. Now, if you're growing them at home and you want to cure them, this is what I suggest is put them into some breathable crates, take them into your bathroom, take a space heater that you, and a thermometer so you can adjust the temperature to that 85 degrees, take your um, faucet and let it be dripping constantly, and then leave them in there for three to five days and they'll be cured and then you can take them and store them in a cooler place and um, that's an easy way to cure them. So how do you know three days is minimum and five days won't harm them either. So, um, you know, I, the commercial growers will do at least a minimum of uh, three days. So sometimes you get busy and you're not ready to turn them off in three days and or you forget. So five days, don't let them go beyond five days is basically. After five days, they might start, you know, you might start seeing the skin break out with a sprout. So we started out with a very primitive way of washing and processing them and uh, I regret that it, we didn't invest the 4000 or 4500 dollars to buy a wash line when we first started because we were hand washing 80, well, probably 40 some thousand pounds of them um, through this bathtub that I just mounted on legs. And then uh, we bought a, an old, um, uh, it was a screen printing uh, dryer that had some heating things in there and it was like a conveyor. So we washed them, put them on that and I mounted a, um, a fan that was off a uh, swamp cooler and that pushed some air through and then you can see them on the, the rotational table there, collection table, then we put a fan above that that blew air down and would dry them and 10, 15 minutes they'd be dry ready to pack into the boxes. Um, so we have, we have a scale there, we'd put 31 pounds because we would start packing at the beginning of the week and by the end of the week, if we packed them at 30 pounds, they would actually probably weigh 30, uh, 29 and a half. So we, we just do 31 or nearly 31 and by the time we deliver them, they're gonna have a 30, 30 pounds in them. You don't want them to dry them out, that's not the best way to do them. You want humidity and the, and the heat. Um, yes, another question. Um, Florida is so hot, and we, we need, I don't have any of this score. Uh huh. So I'd like to know can I dig a hole on the ground? Yeah, probably in a, in a tropical, more tropical area. There's several ways that you can do it. Um, you could have something like a root cellar that you could store them in because the ground stays at 55 degrees. Once you get past the, the surface of the soil that's been heated up by the sun, it's going to be around 55, close to that. Um, you could bury them in sand that's not, you don't want it to be too, too wet. Um, and people that I know that live in tropical areas, the plants won't die. So they can have these plants growing there and when they want to eat, they just dig it out. <laughs> and of course they grow bigger and bigger. So you want to be constantly planting more and more, but they can pretty much grow year round. So you could possibly just keep your plants alive and, and just harvest them when you want them. And that would keep them. Yes? Would they be still alive in winter in Virginia? They'll, no, if they're outside in the cold, once you get below 55, if you're at 40 or less than 40, 40 even down to 35, the colder, the faster they rot. So if, if they're being stored at 40 degrees, they might last a month, but then you'll start seeing them starting to go rotten. So 55 degrees stores them, and if you can get as close to that as possible, they will handle a bit colder, but definitely not freezing. Freezing temperature will, they'll just go rotten immediately, you know, so. Do you yes. No, leave, them, leave the dirt on them. If you wash them, you, you've uh, shortened their life. Once we wash them and they go to the supermarket and they get put out on display, they'll look good for about two weeks and then they start shriveling. The washing seems to make them want to shrivel and um, they just look uglier and uglier. And they'll, you know, they'll still be good and edible for a month or possibly a little bit longer than a month, but their appearance keeps deteriorating. So leave the dirt on them for, for curing. Yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, with families getting small, do they 
Uh huh. People want to buy a number one, and um, a number one, a minimum size for a number one is going to be um, inch and three quarter diameter for at least three inches long. So it can be, you know, roughly about that size. That's the very smallest for a number one. I'm trying to remember what the largest size for a number one is. Um, I'll show you a picture. <laughs> you know, an, a largest number one is going to be like this size. It's probably like three or three and a half inches for about um, over a space of about five or six inches. Um, nothing better about them. They're going to be the same. It's just that people have a picture in their mind of what the size should be. They've been conditioned to it. You can have a jumbo. We've had some that have come. <laughs> they've been amazingly big, like a football. And you eat them, and they're the same. Some varieties will be a bit uh, stringy, start getting stringy inside when they get bigger. But typically, the stringiness comes from drying out a little bit too. Um, so, yeah, as far as the eating quality, it doesn't really de you know, deteriorate because of the size. It's just that, can you use that much sweet potato unless you have a big family? <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so what I do sometimes is when I, when I get into late August and into September, I'll start digging away and, and just doing a sampling to see what they're growing like. And once they start, there's an average of you know, a good number one size, we start harvesting. Um, but typically, that for us, it's not till uh, 1st of October. But sometimes I have seen them mid-September that are big enough. So yeah, I just monitor them like that if you're going to be selling them. Okay, so what, you, what he's saying is, is valid, especially if you're in an area that has a lot of rain in the summertime. The vines, you know, when they're planted, they root out um, from the moisture. So when it rains a lot and the vines are creeping across the ground, wherever there's moisture, they start putting roots down. So he was saying there's a method where they actually rotate the vines to keep them from rooting down. Now, that would be beneficial... Uh, commercially, it's probably not that viable. I have seen a, uh, a YouTube video where one farmer in North Carolina would actually go through and cut the vines, like with, with uh, coulters or something, go down as rows and cut them, and maybe it was for that reason, I don't know. But um, we typically don't have that problem because it's drier and it's only moist along the top of the rows where, 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 where the drip tape is. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.